Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 27, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in a lot less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Today it's an email program, and it's a bat. In fact, it's an email program called The Bat. I have been using this program since about 2002, maybe earlier than that. The earliest reference I could find in old Technology Corner programs was in 2003. At that time, I wrote that I was a fan of the bat and said that version 2 had been in development for at least two years. Well, now RIT Labs, which is located in Moldova, is heading for version 4, having just released version 3.99. In 2003, I said version 2 looks and feels a lot like version 1.6. That's the version that was around for a long, long time. I said I could see some new features and some improvements, but overall the program hasn't been upgraded beyond all recognition. This is good. And that's a problem with programs. Sometimes so many improvements are made that they turn out not to be improvements and actually degrade the way the application works. So far, the designers of the BAT have avoided doing that. More than a dozen releases of version 3 have continued along that improvement path. It's been slow. It's been steady. I hope, and I suspect, that version 4, whenever it's released, will continue to be evolutionary instead of revolutionary. The BAT is an extremely versatile email application. If you're interested in the changes that they made between version 3.98.4 and 3.99.3, you'll see a summary of those changes on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. And what's interesting is that RIT Labs makes about that same number of changes every 30 to 60 days. And they're not afraid to call a bug a bug. If there's a problem with the way the program was doing something, if something was broken, they report that it was broken. And they report that they fixed it. What an interesting way to do things. You'll also see, if you visit the website a list of my email folders. And you'll see that I have a lot of folders. This is one of those images that normally when you go to my site, you can click the image and you can see a bigger version. (laughs) Sorry, not this time. Uh, You can just see kind of the number of folders that are there. That's not that many email accounts. There are two primary email accounts and three or four others that act as collectors for various things. But you'll see the folders that mail gets distributed into automatically by the sorting routines that are included. Why do I have so many folders? Well, I use email as a way to keep track of things back over the years. I pitch old messages in there and keep them essentially as references because the bat makes it very easy for me to search. In fact, the bat has a superb search feature far better than the one that Outlook provides, and I use Outlook at the office, far better than the one that's provided in Outlook 2007. 
Now, there's a certain amount of trust involved in storing 16,000 messages that go back five years. The bat has earned that trust over that five-year period. In preparing this report, I tried to think about what some of my favorite features are. And the thing is, with the bat, even though I have used the program for more than five years, I still believe that there are a lot of features it offers that I don't really know about. I mean, it's not that I don't know how to use them. It's that I don't even know they're there yet because it's a feature I haven't needed yet. Every time I think that there's a feature I wish the bat had, I search the help file and find out that it's been there all along. I just hadn't found it yet. So, in no particular order, some of the features that I find particularly helpful. There is the ability to examine any part of an inbound message, unlike, say, for example, Outlook, where you can see, if you jump through enough hoops, most of what's in the header. Well, with the bat, you can see the entire message. If it's a multi-part message, you can see the dividers between the various parts of the message. You can see absolutely anything. I mentioned the ability to filter messages. That's another advantage of being able to see any part of the inbound message. The filters can see that, too. So, when it comes to identifying messages, I can look for the occurrence of a particular word, a particular phrase, a particular combination of words, a particular combination of words that occurs when some other word doesn't occur, if the message is from a certain person or if the message is from someone other than a particular person. In other words, there are lots of ands and ors and and nots and or nots involved in the filters. Now, it takes a little while to get used to these filters, and it takes a little while to learn how to write them and how to get them in a good order. But once you do that, this is a program that is more powerful than any other email program on the planet. And you can search and sort outbound messages. And if the existing headers aren't sufficient for sorting, you can add your own. Now, in most cases, my outbound messages go into a folder called To Be Deleted. That's because most of my messages aren't particularly important. After a week or two, they can be safely deleted. But messages to clients, family members, and the like are ones that I want to save. So I created a special header called X Save. Other applications know that any header item beginning with X dash is to simply be ignored. That's according to the RFC that pertains to Internet email. So if I'm sending a message I want to save, I write the name of the folder in my special little X save field. And when the bat sends that message, it puts my copy in the folder I specified. If the field is empty, the message just goes into the to-be-deleted box. Easy. When I write a message as the technologies are, I'd like my signature to reflect that. When I write a personal message for my personal account, well, I want the signature to reflect that. And when I send a message to a discussion list, I'd like a completely different signature. For example, I have some random sayings that occur in most of my outbound messages, but when sending messages to one of the discussion lists, because the particular discussion list involved forbids the discussion of any kind of politics, and because some of my little sayings do have some political connotations, I simply want them to be omitted. Easy. Signatures and a lot of other account information 
may be specified either by account or even by a folder within the account. Now, the BAT has quick templates. I find these extremely useful. They make it possible for me to send short or even long messages with just a few keystrokes. A few years ago, my gallbladder and I had a parting of ways, and I spent a few days in the hospital. When I got back, I found a lot of messages asking what happened, so I created a quick template called SICK, and to reply to one of those inquiries, all I had to do was hit Control-R to reply to the message, type the word SICK, and press Control spacebar. The bat then typed out a message that was about 10 lines long that explained that I'd had gallstones and what they felt like and that they weren't very pleasant and that surgery was in my future, but all was well at the current time. Now, if I'd had to type that to each of the people who sent me the message, or even if I'd used cut and paste, I would have had to go back and find an earlier message, copy the text, and paste it in. Very inefficient. Quick templates are wonderful. What's not so great about the bat? Well, in 2003, I complained that documentation is still a sore point. And, well, documentation is still a sore point, even now in 2007. I said at that time, the bat is astonishingly powerful and almost infinitely customizable. The problem is that the documentation doesn't reveal the application's strengths, and Microsoft has slammed Outlook Express onto every Windows computer, so that's what a lot of people use, even though the Toronto Star once referred to the application as Lookout. Not much has changed there. The documentation is better than it was. There's no manual. It's all online. But it still covers only a tiny fraction of what the program is really capable of doing. Generally, if you can think of something you want an email program to do, the bat probably does it. The challenge is finding out how to make it work. Bottom line, four cats. I don't think I've ever given the bat five cats, even though I really, really want to. And it really deserves five cats. It's just that the lack of good, solid documentation gets in the way. Late last week, I was sitting in the JetBlue terminal at JFK Airport in New York City. That's Terminal 6, the old TWA terminal. When I tried to connect to the free Wi-Fi hotspot that JetBlue provides, the result was a connection, but no ability to reach any email or website services. A quick analysis of that situation revealed that the problem was not with my Apple PowerBook, because all around me, I saw people, some with Mac computers, some with Windows machines, trying to connect and failing. Some of them were more persistent than I was, but nobody was successful. In another part of the terminal, the Wi-Fi system was operating properly. Now, it would have been nice if JetBlue personnel had let people know about the problem. Maybe they didn't know about it themselves. What I found interesting was that the most frustrated users seemed to be those with Windows machines. I've traveled with a Mac a number of times now, and it is easier, at least for me, and I'm a long-time Windows user, it is easier for me to connect to most networks with a Mac. When I try to connect with a Windows machine, sometimes I run into really bizarre problems, and it takes a while to sort them all out. The Mac normally just connects. Well, the Mac normally just didn't connect at JFK, but a little observation of the machine and a little observation of what was going on around me told me that the problem wasn't 
with me. As I watched that scene play out at JFK, I thought about a problem that I was trying to help a client with several weeks ago. He was having trouble getting two machines on his local network to see each other, all Windows machines. We went through a bunch of suggestions and trying things. For example, I suggested that he try creating a new user, make that new user a member of the administrator's local group for testing on both machines, use the exact same name on both machines, the exact same password. I also suggested that he enable NetBIOS over TCP IP, and once that was done, I wanted him to try mapping a network drive to the other computer's share. I suggested trying to explore after mapping the drive, and if he could access the files, then the problem was with name resolution, and you should edit the host's file. The host's file is in an interesting place on a Windows machine. It's a little difficult to get to. Not particularly difficult to edit. And we continued through an entire series of steps with suggestions and little pictures that I sent and more suggestions and more steps. And then we found the solution was easy. The easy part of the solution was hiring a network security consultant to visit the site and sort things out. One of the problems was that I'm approximately 1,947 miles from the client. And it's kind of hard to do that kind of job from that far away. That should be done on site. In nerdly news, Apple filed a patent application back in 2004 for an anti-theft system. The company says it wants to use that to protect mobile devices, laptop computers, iPods, mobile phones, and the like. These are small but valuable devices, and they are common targets of theft. Apple's idea is for the mobile device to track its own motions and to watch for what they refer to as unusual motions. Apple says that when a mobile device is being stolen, unusual movements occur, bumping and shaking, for example. A device that detects these unusual motions could lock itself or even sound an alarm. Now, having just returned from a week in New York City where approximately 30% of all subway riders seem to be sporting iPods, I have to wonder just how well those devices will be able to tell the difference between theft-related bumping and shaking and the bumping and shaking that occurs on a subway, a bus, a car, or a bike, particularly at rush hour. Individuals have generally detectable typing patterns. It's possible for a security system to observe those typing patterns and shut down the system if the user isn't typing the way the usual user types. That technology isn't new, and by the way, it's not included in Apple's U.S. patent. I offer it only as an example of technology that works properly, but can fail in a widespread deployment. In a corporate environment where individual users have assigned computers, a system like that could detect unauthorized use easily. But the system can cause problems if a user forgets the detection system is active, allows somebody else to use the computer at home, for example, if you have house guests, then has to figure out how to unlock a locked system. Apple says it would address the mass transit issue by providing software to adjust the sensitivity of the anti-theft software. Users could also turn it off, and after probably one false alarm, that's probably what a lot of users would do. Maybe I was wrong about spam. Not wrong to say that it's bad, but wrong to say that it would be the ruination of the Internet. We're getting more spam, but it seems that we're dealing with it better, too. A comprehensive survey by the Pew Internet and American Life Project 
says, yeah, you're right, we're getting more spam than we've ever gotten before, but we are generally less concerned about it because we're getting smarter about controlling the spew. The survey reports that 71% of email users use filters offered by their email provider or employer to block spam. Several years ago, I did say that unchecked spam could effectively kill the Internet. The useless Federal Can-Spam Act has had little effect, but users themselves have adapted. Even so, 55% of email users say they have lost trust in email because of spam. Now, that is sad. It's sad because spam is so easily recognized, and it really does not need to be a source of confusion or lost trust. Pew conducted their phone survey between February 15th and March 7th of this year, among a nationally representative sample of 2,200 American adults. In the sample, 1,405 of the respondents were emailed users, the margin of error on the entire group, plus or minus three percentage points. 37% of email users said that spam had increased in their personal email accounts. 29% said they'd seen an increase at work. Both of those figures increased from what users reported three years ago in a similar study. Three years ago, only 29% said they were seeing an increase. What has changed in three years? Well, for one thing, attitudes. Three years ago, 25% of users said spam was a big problem for them. Now, only 18% feel that way. And 28%, which is up from 16%, say spam is not a problem at all. That parallels my experience. Three years ago, I considered spam to be a huge problem. Today, because of some sophisticated filtering, it is no longer a problem for me. In the middle, about half of all email users say they consider spam an annoyance, but not a big problem. Now, what's interesting is the reactions to spam. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a couple of charts from this survey. And what's interesting is that all Internet users... Internet users between the ages of 18 and 49, Internet users over 50, Internet users with a college degree, without a college degree, daily Internet users, less frequent Internet users, people who have been using the Internet for quite a while, people who have been using the Internet for only a shorter period, people with and without various kinds of email accounts, all say that spam is a big problem about 18 to 19 percent of the time. There is considerable lack of consistency from one group to another in those who consider spam to be annoying but not a big problem and who consider spam not to be a problem at all. Internet users with a college degree generally consider spam not to be a problem. And this is exactly the reverse of what I would expect. About 21% of Internet users with six years or more online say that spam is not a problem at all but 41% of those who have been online less than six years say that spam is not a problem. Maybe they just haven't seen very much spam yet. According to the Pew researchers, there appear to be several reasons fewer people say that spam is a big problem for them these days. First, the volume of the most offensive kind of spam has decreased. And second, people are becoming more knowledgeable about spam and they know better how to handle it. More than two-thirds of users, about 68%, say they almost never unintentionally open an email message without realizing it is spam. About 27% say they do that occasionally. 
and only about 5% say they often open spam messages without realizing what it is they're opening. So there is hope after all. And speaking of email, I'd like to hear from you. Let me know where in the world you are, what you think of the format of this program. The address, bill.blin, B-L-I-N-N, at techbiter, T-E-C-H-B-Y-T-E-R, dot com. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of May 27, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.